good afternoon. Um, thanks for being here today for the second lecture in the Kuiper Lecture Series. Um, we're delighted to have Dr. Baycoat here for these few days. Um, yes. um, I'm not going to give the long introduction that you got this morning, um, but we are very thankful to a generous friend of the college for funding uh, this lecture series um, and very thankful to Dr. Baycoat for, for being with us. Um, he's Associate Professor of Theology at Wheaton College. He's been there since 2001, did you 2000. say? 2000. Yeah. Um, and so we're just really glad. It's been a while since he's been at Covenant, and so we're really glad to have him here. And I'm excited that you get to hear him this afternoon. I've heard an earlier version of, of this lecture. Um, it's really meaningful just to hear a little bit about his personal journey with Kuiper. So I hope you will enjoy that. This is pretty informal. He'll, he'll talk for 30 or 40 minutes, and then we'll have time for Q&A afterwards. So, so please welcome Dr. Right. Baycoat. Thanks for the, the warm welcome. I really appreciate that so much. Um, and it's, it's, it's great to be here. Um, so, uh, so as I said, you know, chapel today, uh, you know, Kuiper gave me oxygen, uh, but uh, he also gave me other things as well, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but before that, uh, a, a way into what I'm going to talk about today is uh, I'll take you to my shower in January. Uh, sometimes ideas come to me in the shower, like really, really good ideas. Most of them, unfortunately, stay in the shower. It's like there's a threshold. And when I walk out, it's like, it's gone. <laughs> but this, one's, this one actually hung on with me. And this was the thought that came to my mind. Um, what if there were action figures for one's favorite theologians? For instance, for instance, uh, you know, like action figures, you know, you, you, they're in the store, they're, they're, they're boxed, and you have to pick the picture, they're, they're made of plastic, right? So like, uh, so Teresa of Avila for mystics, let's say, right? And the line might be, you know, Teresa of Avila, she takes you into the interior castle or something like that. Um, or, or a Martin Luther, uh, when, you know, you, there's all kinds of captions we can come up with <laughs> for Martin Luther. But let's just say, you know, uh, leading you to the revolution. Um, Karl Barth, you know, uh, you know, uh, the main Swiss Protestant of the 20th century or something like that, you know. You can have another one for Emil Brunner with a frown on his face if you want to do that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there, there's Abraham Kuyper, and, and, you know, and the label could perhaps be, you know, the other Father Abraham uh, leading us into faithfulness in public life. Of course, the thing about packaging is that if you read everything on the packaging, you know, uh, eventually you might get around to the smaller print where there could be something that says warning. And of course, sometimes when there's a warning, the warning is things like, uh, you know, if it's an action figure, you know, made of uh, you know, toxic plastic, please keep away from small children so they don't swallow the pieces or something like that. So, uh, wh but what would be the warning label, perhaps, for some of these theologians? So I I'll just go with one for Karl Barth, and then uh, I'll get to the one for Kuiper. So uh, the one for Karl Barth might say, excessively enamored of his secretary, is what it might say. So you don't know who I'm talking about, just read about uh, Karl Barth, Barth and Charlotte von Kirchbaum, and uh, I'll let you uh, figure out the rest from there. Kuiper's warning label uh, would have more than one thing to say, though. Because first, it might say, warning, does not play well with others. <laughs> then it would say, not particularly good at grooming successors. Tends to confuse God's sovereign plans with his own aims. And then, prone to making racially insensitive remarks. I didn't understand that figures like Kuiper come with warning labels when I was initially enamored of him. But it wasn't long after that when uh, I did discover this. Because um, as I said this morning, 
For me, Kuiper was my theological rationale a way into public engagement. You know, the person helping me have permission that it's okay to be a publicly engaged Christian. And, you know, I'm going to read those words again that were so important to me. So when he said, Calvinism has not only honored man for the sake of his likeness to the divine image, but also the world as the divine creation. And as it once placed to the front the great principle that there is a particular grace which works salvation and also a common grace by which God maintains the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption, and thus allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator. That was the oxygen mask I mentioned in chapel today. So I was very happy that there was someone who was there to help me think about public theology. I learned he's a visionary who hoped to see his beloved Netherlands eventually become a society shaped by God's divine ordinances. But before finishing reading the same stone lectures that gave me mm -hmm. oxygen, I, the day came when I learned that a warning label was necessary. Mm -hmm. So uh, though he had a society, a vision of society influenced deeply by Christianity, I discovered that it was not clear that this vision of the future transcended unfortunate views on race. And this is where I ran into a crisis. Two examples would suffice, but there's more than two. But we'll just go with these two. So here is where the, the crisis initially emerged. And then the other one is one I learned about later that just kind of added fuel. So about six pages from the end, honestly, I'm, I'm ready to just sign a contract and say, Kuiper, yes, forever. <laughs> I will follow you forever. And then he's making a contrast about the created order between election and evolution and says, to put it concretely, if you were a plant, you would rather be a rose than mushroom. If insect, butterfly rather than spider. If bird, eagle rather than owl. If a higher vertebrate, lion rather than hyena. And again, being man, richer than poor, talented rather than dull-minded, of the Aryan race, than Hottentot or Kaffir. Hmm. You have to understand what happened when I read those words. Hmm. I'm almost at the end. The book is put down. Because I was very excited about Kuiper being, this is going to be my dissertation figure, and now what was I going to do? So, uh, but I later learned uh, that in Common Grace and Art and Science, he also said this, beauty does not enrich the entire earth. On the contrary, the beautiful, the common, and the hideous exist next to each other at present. A lion is beautiful, a calf is common, a rat is hideous. The same is true of people. The Arab appeals to you by beauty of appearance. The Dutch are common, the Hottentot fills you with loathing. So, uh, you know, th 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 this is a problem, okay? Hot and tot, cat, right? Th these are people in South Africa, okay? People like, of, you know, this pigmentation, all right? So, uh, here's an irony, though. Uh, you know, there's this irony. Uh, Kuiper advocates commingling of blood as the path to higher development of the entire human race. However, um, he even has qualifiers of that. So in his lecture, The Crisis of South Africa, uh, he, he strongly discouraged the commingling of blood between Africans and the Boers. But what do we do with uh, these kinds of disappointing comments? I mean, how does one wind up being a critical thinker about this rather than deciding that, uh, no, all things Kuiper must burn. And uh, when you see Kuiper in stained glass, as you do in the chapel here, that what you must do is look for a rock and great accuracy. Hmm. Right. Hmm. What do you do? Well, first, there are two inadequate responses. First, denial. Here, 
One could possibly argue that Kuiper should not be judged by contemporary people who failed to recognize he was a man of his time and place, and his statements were in truth only descriptive examples he was using to make other points. Now, that's actually true. But he thinks he's making points that are obvious to his readers, right? This is late 19th century, right? Late 19th century, first seven or eight years of the 20th century. So it's not like uh, most people thought, I can't believe you're saying that. They probably thought, oh yeah, sure, right? Nonetheless, this can't work. <laughs> because even if it is true, it will do little, if anything, to address the shock and distress of persons of African descent who read those words. Even if there's a legitimate explanation for these quotes, it will be difficult to gain a hearing for, thing, for all things Kuiper, shall we say, if it seems like his quotes are being defended or characterized as inoffensive. Mm -hmm. We cannot deny the loss of appetite for Kuiper and neo-Calvinism that can result from reading those works. But the other approach we cannot take is dismissal. Here, one immediately assumes these quotes indicate Kuiper was not only a racist, but also that all his other contributions are linked to racist commitments and cannot be helpful in any way to non-whites. The problem with this response is the refusal to ask whether these quotes reveal something present throughout all of Kuiper's work. A rush to summary judgment does not help us discover the truth. So what do we do? First, we must be truly critical thinkers or we won't get anywhere. So in order to, be, to begin moving forward towards being critical thinkers, we can take a cue from filmmakers such as Steve McQueen who are known for scenes with long takes. A long take is when there is an uninterrupted shot that may last for several minutes. The camera may move closer or further away, but the camera remains fixed on a place. In 12 Years a Slave, which if you haven't seen, it's a pretty tough movie to watch, but it's a great movie. So McQueen said he used long takes in the hanging scene and the whipping scene, uh, just be ready for the, both of them, particularly the whipping scene. But he used long takes in the hanging scene and the whipping scene because it was important for the audience not to be left off the hook. In the same way, we must do long takes on Kuiper's shocking words on race and on the complexities of race as we learn about its horrors uh, and its embeddedness in the modern world. We have to actually see what is there and resist averting our gaze or seeking ways to, to place a veil over the ugly parts of the past. So in this regard, to move forward past denial or dismissal, we must be committed to the truth about Kuiper himself, recognizing he is complex like the rest of us humans. As we pursue critical thinking, it is important for Christians to practice obedience to the two greatest commandments. In loving God above all other things, we refuse first to put any figure on a pedestal and resist projecting messianic status on them. Mm -hmm. We admit Kuiper had feet of clay like all of us. Second, if we're to love our neighbors as ourselves, including those who have been here before us, we must be willing to treat them as we would have others treat us. This means having a willingness to look at Kuiper truthfully as a person who made mistakes, but also as a person who may have important contributions for us. And in this case, contributions that may undermine the views expressed in the quotes I read earlier. If we obey the two greatest commandments, we are on the way to becoming critical thinkers. Indeed, it's because of my encounter with that quote from Kuiper at the end of the Stone Lectures that I became a critical thinker instead of a zero-sum thinker. A zero-sum thinker, oh, there's something bad that they said, so I burn everything that they've done. Rather than asking further questions, what's good, what's bad, what's helpful, what's not helpful. So what do we do next? First. We admit these quotes and others are disappointing and distressing, and believe me, it was distress for me. Amen. So they reveal that Kuiper was truly a person of a colonialist, culturally imperialist <laughs> mindset. Though he may have thought he was making descriptive statements, they betray a disdain for those who are not European, and perhaps for those particularly from Africa. 
Beyond this, our aim should be, be not to excavate all the ways that Kuiper displayed views about racial superiority, superiority. Instead, I suggest we look at other dimensions of his work and ask how the neo-Calvinism associated with him might actually provide helpful theological contributions that encourage the development of a church and society, including an antidote to racism and other forms of social oppression. So I direct our attention to Kuiper's comments and claims in the Stone Lectures about the equality of humans that stem from Calvinism. So here's what he says. This is also in that same first lecture where he talks about common grace. Calvinism has derived from its fundamental relation to God a peculiar interpretation of man's relation to man. And it is this only true relation which since the 16th century has been gaining the day. If Calvinism places our entire human life immediately before God, then it follows that all men or women, rich or poor, weak or strong, dull or talented, as creatures of God and as lost sinners, have no claim whatsoever to lord it over another, and that we stand as equals before God and consequently equals man to man, human to human. Hence, we cannot recognize any distinction among men save such as has been imposed by God himself in that he gave one to have authority over the other or enriched one with more talents than the other in order that the man of more talents, now watch this part, should serve the man with less and in him serve his God. So even when he talks about the superiority, the superiority isn't a reason for oppression. It's really a responsibility to serve. Okay? Hence, Calvinism condemns not merely all open slavery and systems of caste, but also all covert slavery of women and of the poor. It is opposed to hierarchy among men. It tolerates no aristocracy, save such as is able either in person or in family, by the grace of God, to exhibit superiority of character or talent, and to show that it does not claim this superiority for self-aggrandizement or ambitious pride, but for the sake of spending it in the service of God. Hence, Calvinism was bound to find its utterance in a democratic interpretation of life, to proclaim the liberty of nations and not to rest until both politically and socially every man, simply because he is man, because they are human, that they should be recognized, respected, and dealt with as a creature created after the divine likeness. Now that's chapter one, right? So an important question arises. Is the view of humanity combined with the view of, of divine sovereignty a way out of this for Kuiper? Because some people could still read this and think, well, look, God's sovereign, God arranges things, it's the society that we have, right? So uh, perhaps we shouldn't be so zealous about trying to change things. Put it differently, does God's sovereign ordering of our life allow for little or no action in response to issues such as racism? While scripture teaches us that God gives each of us our place according to his divine plan, it is important for us to consider the purpose of this revealed truth. In my view, we are taught these truths about divine sovereignty for the purpose of comforting us and giving us confidence in God's plan across history not for the purpose of binding or handcuffing us so we stay still and simply watch God's plans unfold. Divine sorrowing does not place us under arrest and confine us to inaction in God's world. We still have a great responsibility to discern and pursue faithfulness in God's mission to the world. If this is true, then we must reach another conclusion. Indeed, at the end of this section, Kuiper himself seems to make inactivity impossible because the final goal is to treat each person with proper respect and dignity because of our creation in the divine image. This also means that for Kuiper, somewhere the wires were crossed. Mm -hmm. And his own words portray the inability to render equal respect to all persons. So he failed, and let's call it what it is. He failed. We should look at this quote as indicating the possibilities for the pursuit of the dignity of all persons, which means participating in ways to dismantle dehumanizing social systems. 
a high theological anthropology, or a properly Calvinistic conception in Kuiper's view, demands we take this path if we are in societies like many of the modern West that allow citizens to play a role in the direction of society. This is also a warning for us to examine ourselves to see where the wires might cross with us. There are other dimensions of Kuiper's work helpful for constructing a public theology that move us toward a better version of the future than Kuiper could have imagined. Though they are familiar themes, Kuiper's commitment to multiformity and the relationship between Kuiper's work in common grace and the work of the Spirit in creation, as well as recreation, help catalyze Christian public practice, in particular the daunting challenges of a racialized society that remain. So first, multiformity. So in the Stone Lectures, as well as in his Principles of Sacred Theology, Kuiper recognizes the need for multiple perspectives and the limitations of any person or tradition to completely grasp all of the dimensions of truth. Taken in the most generous and opportunistic sense, this kind of perspectivalism conveys the recognition of our need for insights from context often absent and our need for muted, suppressed, or undeveloped historical narratives. Now, Kuiper recognized this. So he, I mean, he says this I mean, in a number of places, right? But, but I think one of the things to keep in mind there is that sometimes what happens, we deal with any tradition, including neo-Calvinism, uh, people strangely are only interested uh, in sort of a narrow uh, range of voices helping them to learn about things. Uh, so the multiformity that Kuiper talks about seemingly uh, doesn't quite get uh, the development or the attention that he actually suggests that it should. So that's first. Second, what, what I call the opportunity of common grace. So I read that quote about common grace. That's my oxygen quote, as I like to call it. So think about this. The doctrine of common grace is helpful because it allows us to remember a basic tenet of Christian faith. The savior of the world is the creator of the world. So Christ does not merely have significance for the believer's soul, but also for his body, for the visible world, and for the outcome of world history. So if we miss this point, we run the risk, as Kuiper points out elsewhere, of living in two different worlds, only one of which is directly tied to our savior. Suddenly scholarship, drama, literature, business, law, politics, fill in the blank, are all unholy disciplines. So he says, therefore, every view that would confine God's work to the small sector we label church life must be set aside. There's beside that great work of God and special grace, that totally other work of God in the realm of common grace. That work encompasses the whole life of the world. There's a great essay by a guy named S.U. Zaldema uh, in, in a book called Communication and Confrontation called Common Grace and Christian Action in Abraham Kuyper. And I love this quote. This is what he says. Common grace is the presupposition of the possibility of Christian cultural activity. Amen. Right? It's, think about it. It's setting the stage right, for Christian engagement, for Christian cultural activity. So taken in full strength, with a recognition of the potential for all humans to play a role in the stewardship of human life and society, common grace is a catalytic doctrine for the kind of participation in society oriented towards building societies that are not attempts, this is important, not attempts at a realized eschatology, but penultimate gestures toward a world with greater flourishing for all humans. So everything is subject to revision, in other words. So the work of the Holy Spirit in creation is also very important here, as this generous divine action is the dynamic power of common grace. So as Kuiper states in his volume of the Holy Spirit, I love this quote. I, like, I love a lot of quotes by Kuiper. I guess that's obvious. So, uh, how intangible are the forces of nature? How full of majesty the forces of magnetism? But life underlies all. Even through the apparently dead trunk sighs an imperceptible breath. From the unfathomable depths of all, an inward hidden principle works upward and outward. It shows the nature much more in man and angel. And what is this quickening and animating principle but the Holy Spirit? This inward, invisible something is God's direct touch. There is in us and every creature a point where the living God touches us to uphold us. 
For nothing exists without being upheld by Almighty God from moment to moment. And the elect at this point is their spiritual life, and the rational creature is rational consciousness. And in all creatures, whether rational or, or, or not, they are life principle. And as the Holy Spirit is the person in the Holy Trinity whose office it is to affect this direct touch and fellowship with the creature in his inmost being, it is he who dwells in the hearts of the elect, who animates every rational being, who sustains the principle of life in every creature. We must also note the importance of a second pneumatological dimension, the Spirit's work of regeneration and sanctification, with the particular grace that Kuiper talks about. The important point here is that without this regenerating and sanctifying work, humans are unlikely to recognize or acknowledge the reality of common grace. Moreover, our task of stewarding the possibilities of common grace is one important dimension of practicing sanctification. Sanctification isn't just private, it's public as well. Now before I talk about some steps toward a future Kuiper was unable to see, there may be an elephant in the room that some of you uh, may be wondering about, and that is the question, well, what about apartheid, somebody said. Because there are people who would say, well, you know, uh, I heard that Kuiper is the architect of apartheid. So... Let's just clear the air, shall we? Hmm. So, uh, nowhere, when Kuiper articulates his doctrine of what's called sphere sovereignty. So when he's talking about sphere sovereignty, he's talking about as God is sovereign over everything, and in the world, there are social spheres, as he calls them, okay? So the state, family, church, educational realm, etc. Each of those social spheres have a sovereignty within its sphere. That's what sphere sovereignty is about, primarily. So, never does Kuiper make race a sphere, hmm. make our ethnicity a sphere. Hmm. On the other hand, you know, when people die, people do things with their legacies. And so, uh, there are people in South Africa who uh, conveniently, let's say, used sphere sovereignty as part of the way that they made a case for apartheid. So making race is a sphere, because the whole point about spheres is that spheres are supposed to be distinct and not merged, Yeah. right? Yeah. So apartheid, right, the races aren't supposed to be together. So it's true then that there are people who took an idea from Kuiper, Dutch Reformed people, or Dutch Reformed heirs, you might say, uh, who took Kuiper's language or his idea and modified that idea or added another dimension to that idea and made race a sphere. But Kuiper himself is not the one that made race a sphere. So it's a mistake to say that Kuiper is the architect of apartheid. It's not a mistake to say that, you know, strange things happen with people's legacies. People do all kinds of good things with legacies, but they also do dysfunctional things or horrific things Amen. with people's legacies Amen. as well. So apartheid is a malfunctioning legacy mm. of Kuiper's sphere sovereignty. Amen. Okay? Mm -hmm. So apartheid, is it Kuiper's fault? No. Uh, is it poor stewardship of his legacy? Oh, I think so. So there we are with that uh, part of it. We have, we have to talk about that. All right, now towards a step, step towards the future Kuiper was not quite able to see. 1897, it's the 25th anniversary of Kuiper's role as the editor of uh, the daily paper called The Standard. Now, uh, we have to understand about Kuiper among the many things that he did, because he was truly a Renaissance man who did so many things that it's dizzying. Uh, at times it was dizzying for him, actually, so. Uh, even he couldn't really keep it up all the time. But he was editor of this, uh, the paper, The Standard is what his translation. And at the 25th anniversary, he said that this was his, a brief expression of his ruling passion of life. My life is ruled by but one passion. One higher urge drives will and soul. May breath fail me before I ever allow that sacred urge to fail, to fall. 
Tis to affirm God's holy statutes in church and state, in home and school, despite the world's strong remonstrations, to bless our people with his rule. Tis to engrave God's holy order heard in creation and the word upon the nation's public conscience till God is once again its Lord. Kuiper dreamed of a Netherlands ruled by God's divine ordinances. As stated, the blessed rule for which he hoped seems admirable, but his inability to rise above his assumptions on race can lead us to speculate that what he hoped for in the Netherlands and by extension elsewhere in the world did not include a vision where those of African descent were among those flourishing at the same level as Europeans. Now, it's possible. It's plausible. One could say, well, he just thought that over time with civilization, eventually those people would catch up. Mm-hmm. Now, possibly that's what he could have thought in theory. What he said didn't seem to show a whole lot of optimism about that happening or not happening anytime soon. So uh, even that, I would argue, is something that, that one has to, to, to deal with and reckon with the value judgment that seems to be an operating assumption for him about uh, African peoples. So though Kyrie may not have been able to see this, his theology at its best is capable of casting and pursuing a vision for society where all humans have the possibility to flourish. This is no easy vision to achieve, as the lamentable and horrific history of race continues to haunt us, not only as a memory, but also as societies continue to contend with living legacies difficult to dismantle. Difficulty, however, is not reason for surrender. This helps us to see that if we are to move forward and catalyze society with the the flourishing of all humans in view, it will require patience, creativity, and a commitment to transformative suffering. Mm. By transformative suffering, I direct attention to this truth. We cannot move forward without going through a process where pain will be our companion. This pain is not only the result of the resistance certain to occur, but also part of the healing process required for wounds from the past and wounds that will occur as the trial and error involved in seeking and pursuing a society in which words like equality and flourishing are not empty symbols, but are expressions of reality. Kuiper's theology can help us move toward a future he could not see. But this will not occur without sometimes feeling like we're experiencing the cross more than a foretaste of the kingdom. And with that, I will take your questions. Amen. If anyone has any questions. Oh, wait. Dr. Green, do you have a question? I, I'm looking at your hand, like 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 you're itching to say something. Um, I, I'm curious. Uh, going back to this this initial quote with, uh, with the animal kingdom. Yes. He's, yes. Uh, yeah. he's invoking something about order and either hierarchy, yeah, aesthetic, yeah. or yes. moral, or in terms of strength and so forth. Sure. Um, I'm wondering, and and here maybe. Both use your knowledge of Kuiper, but also mm-hmm. perhaps a little bit of speculation. It seems like there's is some um, that maybe some good reasons to preserve some notion of hierarchy mm-hmm. within the created order, while mm-hmm. at the same time wanting to rightly, for a lot of the reasons that you uh, named, I'm sure others, uh, sort of move entirely away from that when it comes to any hierarchy or sure, ordering sure. Uh, ethnically or, or right. racially. And right. I wonder if how, how you go about sort of preserving that and I, yeah. preserving some sense of that while at the same time uh, sort of uh, keeping it apart uh, the, the way you have. Right. And, I, and right. I wonder if, if, if our I think one of our natural inclinations is to, to eliminate it altogether. Right. Um, but I'm wondering how you Sure, sure, sure. Of and, and including, I'm not sure, gender. Yeah, sure. Okay, so first, 
Uh, McKay's contrasting election evolution, purposelessness versus pur something that's purposeful. Right, and he's making the case that why a view of the world and development that you know is, is providential as opposed to uh, the, if you will, unguided hand of evolution uh, that it is to be preferred to uh, to go the, the, the Calvinistic route, and that in that Calvinistic route, uh, hey, look where we are when we think about uh, the differences that there are, right. The problem with that is, of course, if you make a value judgment about those differences, and particularly value differences, value judgment differences about people, uh, and given the tendency of humans, basically since Genesis three, to uh, oppress those that are some kind of other, then the, the question is: is how you affirm difference without making difference be uh, a, a a cause for saying? Um, if there are people who have some kind of superiority and they have power and influence, that they then do not use this power and influence in a way which advantages them and either destroys or at least oppresses those that aren't them, right? So, that, so I think that, that's a big part of the problem. I mean, humans have been doing this, you know, I mean, really, you know, the woman you gave me, right? It kind of starts with that, and then cha chapter four, hey, Abel, would you like to go for a walk, right? I mean, and, and, and you know, Cain says, you die. So, um, so, so it's not, uh, you know, atypical of humans to seek and destroy those that are not them. So, uh, to me, that reality is something you have to reckon with when you're acknowledging difference. And how do you acknowledge difference without the acknowledgement of difference being an excuse to at the least disregard, at the most destroy someone else, right? So that's it. Um, just the facts of observation, we know the difference is real. I mean, and, and irrespective of, of uh, race, gender, ethnicity, right? Uh, what, 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 I, what I sometimes like to tell people to sort of blow up certain conceptions of American mythology is, uh, you know, there's the idea in America, you can be whatever you want, right? Because my response is, no, you can't. If you can't do math, you will not be an astronaut. Amen. Now, if you're a billionaire, okay, and there aren't that many of them, right? If you're a billionaire, you can buy yourself a flight, okay? But that's still not most people. So, so no, not, not you can't do whatever you want. Now, that, I mean, that doesn't mean, oh, no, now my, my options are limited. No, it just means that you have limitations. That's all. It doesn't mean you're bad because you have limitations. It just means you're not God, actually, is what it means. <laughs> so so, so you, you can observe all kinds of differences. Uh, and, you, and you can, I mean, you know, there, there are some people who, you know, they, they have certain kind of intellectual aptitudes better than others. Some people are better with their hands than others. I mean, there's all kinds of differences. So, uh, and, and certainly, um, generally speaking, right, there are things that are tendencies that, that, that are typically male and tendencies that are typically female, irrespective of even uh, when you, uh, when you uh, control for the cultural dimensions of what is masculinity and femininity, et cetera, right? So, so the point is that, um, you know, Difference per se is not the problem. Hierarchy isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is the perversion of those things. So the question is, is how you have flourishing amid difference, amid hierarchy. I mean, think about it this way, okay? Uh, we are in um, a circus atmosphere of a presidential uh, election season yeah. right now. Um, Certainly more on the Republican side than the Democrat side, yeah, but yeah. but they've got you know they got a little bit of the circus going on with the Democrats too. Okay, um, <coughs> now now here's the thing about the, about the, the presidential election season though. Here's the thing: um, what it actually takes for a person to do the job of president of the United States, right, is an incredibly difficult job. Most people have no desire to do that job. Say please. Let somebody else do it. Okay? 
And my point is, is that everybody can't be president. Everybody's not able to do it. Everybody's not, quote unquote, wired that way. Right? So we need people that can do that. We need a lot of other people that are like behind the scenes people. They do all other kinds of stuff. It's kind of like, like it's, it's the analogy I can use is like if you go to a movie, what you see on, on, on the screen is you see whoever you're at, the actors and actresses are, et cetera, and you see, um, uh, and, and you might see like special effects, et cetera, right? When the movie's over and the credits roll, most of the names of the credit are people you never see. They're pretty important people, though. In fact, they're so important that nothing will be on the screen without those people you never see. Right, so we need probably most more people that we don't see than people that we do see. Right, the fact that we don't see them doesn't mean they're insignificant. They're incredibly significant. So that raises a question for us about the value we place on what we see, or what we think is prominent, and how that has a, a certain kind of significance vis-a-vis -vis what we don't see as often, even though it's going on all the time. Right. So, so I think. Uh, the, the, the challenge for us, the challenge at least for the church, let's start there, and then hopefully you know, it can like, like bleed over into society in some general way at least, is for w w within the church to encourage truthfulness about people uh, living with the integrity of, of, of the gifts, talents, and abilities that God's given them, uh, and how they use those gifts, talents, and abilities uh, within the church, but also those gifts and talents that God gives them that they use uh, you know, after Sunday, and, and how they use those uh, in ways where it's like a mutual encouragement society, right? And a mutual appreciation society for all the great diversity that there is. Because we actually need all that diversity. We need all the difference. So difference in hierarchy isn't per se the problem, it's perversions. So that's, that's kind of how, how, how I work with it. Yes? So then how would you deal with people who are maybe paying lip service to saying, like, I believe that everyone is equal, sure. that there are differences, and, and they say that they are making value judgments about those differences, right. but are maybe but they are. being passionate? Yeah, right, right, right. Thank you. So the question is about patronizing people. People who claim uh, that everyone is equal, but in practice, uh, uh, you know, it's their face in uh, the dictionary beside the word patronize. Um, so, so uh, what I would say is, well, one, if they're a Christian, I would hope that there's actually a Christian community where uh, people can show them a more excellent way, shall we say, uh, by helping them to ask uh, the most fundamental of questions which is, do you really love your neighbor as yourself? Or do you violate the first commandment by loving what you see in the mirror more than anything else? Because if you really love your neighbor as yourself, it's really kind of hard to be patronized. It's really kind of hard to not think, okay, irrespective of who, what I am uh, or what someone else is, how would I want to be regarded? How would I want to be regarded? If I'm part of a group, how would I want us to be treated and regarded? Right. So, so I think that's a piece of it. Uh, another piece of it, though, is this. Uh, I actually was not going to bring this up because <laughs> it's an idea I'm working on. But I think it's 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 since you said that there's basically a difference between belief and action, right? So uh, thank you, Enlightenment, for giving us an intensification of the bifurcation between theology and ethics what we proclaim versus what we practice, okay? Uh, and it's occurred to me recently that perhaps one of the reasons why we have some of the problems that you're saying is that people are great at seeking the truth and wanting to know it and confess it, uh, but there is not a clear relationship to how those beliefs lead to particular ways of operating. And to the extent that irrespective of fighting the enlightenment, that Bible-believing Christians have basically sort of bought into the bifurcation of theology and ethics where there's a commitment to truth but not a recognition of how the truth ought to automatically lead us to practices that aren't just about personal preferences and choices, but that there are, there are obligations that are upon us by virtue of these things that we believe. 
not just by virtue of what I choose as an autonomous subject, even if it's a regenerated autonomous subject, right? But that if I really believe these things, then I'm actually, wait, first of all, it's not just about me. It's about me and a part of a community that I'm a part of. It's about a world that I'm a part of. And if this is who I am, and I, and I have these beliefs about who I am, this community I'm a part of, this world I'm a part of, then there's something about the way I ought to live that isn't just reducible to my own personal interests. Amen. Right? <coughs> but we have to reconnect those beliefs that don't just, well, we, don't, we, we don't just proclaim that, oh, you know, there's a we, and we have values, when really it's, it's I have values. And the ones that are important to me, then I'll apply myself to them. The ones that aren't, they give me space to say I believe everybody is equal, but then to, in practice, be patronizing. So that's sort of my way of answering your question. Is that? Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, all right. Can I ask a question? Of course. <laughs> of course. Can I ask you a question about a book? For, no, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, that was like well, a... That was wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, like you, I think probably have a love-hate relationship with Kuiper. Yeah. I love that for time. But, so in, in Karl Barth's Dogmatics, at one point, he makes a passing comment about <coughs> Kuiper, and he basically dismisses him mm -hmm. as naive. There, Obviously, I have a problem with that. that I mean, but <laughs> but, but what's yeah, interesting yeah. about that comment is it, it is in the context of basically saying, you, everyone's criticizing the Germans okay. for not being able to handle Hitler. Mm -hmm. But actually, Kuiper's whole system is set up, he would say naively, in such a way, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, Bart's critique of Nazi theology, right. set up in such a way that you just look at the world and you go, hey, look, here's the sphere. Mm -hmm. and, this, and, and this is the way things were made. Yeah, I got you, I got you. I got and you. so, and, and yeah, I yeah. think, and, and Part of the question there is, you know, whether you're in a context in the church that says men and women are equal, but we have a hierarchy, mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. or you're in the church and you say, well, <coughs> we're all God's people, we have a hierarchy, or we're in a political system mm -hmm. saying we're all the same. Right, right. So I'm just trying to, it, it's one of these interesting things to try and figure out. Sphere sovereignty sounds good, but it is so easy to let racism and all this all other stuff. Yeah, so yeah. No, no, it's a great question. One of the potential hazards of any tradition but of neo-Calvinism is oh, creation ordinances. So so there's so the problem is that there can be the illusion that we see clearly enough the ordinances that of course we know exactly how it works out and, and therefore we're not always recognizing that maybe I need to refine how I'm thinking about so that even when I'm thinking about the structure of society, et cetera, um, well, I need to think about that multiformity that Kuiper's talking about. Hey, I need somebody else to be looking at the same thing I'm looking at to help me see more of what's there than perhaps my limited perception you know, uh, allows so me to see. Multiformity is probably our best way. I think that we, we, we definitely need other, uh, other people to help us. Uh, but, but I think also the fact that we are limited in vision that's why I said penultimate gestures. Um, you know, Nick Wolterstorff says, there's this line in uh, Until Justice and Peace Embrace, where he talks about the most insufferable of all creatures, the triumphalist Calvinist, mm -hmm. uh, who is basically a person who thinks that um, they have discovered exactly the way the order of things are supposed to be, and their only job is just to keep it in place. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and so, and, and my point is, is honestly, anybody who's a Christian that thinks that they see completely clearly apparently hasn't read 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> because if we see through a mirror darkly, okay, um, then we're, we can't confuse our perception of things with a realized eschatological vision. If we recognize that, then we have to always ask ourselves, might I need to tweak something here? 
Might there be something going wrong here? Might there be hazards here? Even if something's a pretty good way of structuring something, might there be hazards here? And if there are hazards, how do I put things in place to ward off those hazards, protect us from those hazards? Uh, as opposed to saying, I'm so excited about my system. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I think there has to be um, a perpetual humility about whatever we propose. And if we have that perpetual humility about whatever we propose, then we know, of course, the things are going to have to keep being modified. I don't care whether you call it orders of creation, ordinances of creation, etc. There are things you have to recognize that, well, I see some things pretty good, I think. But I always need to be wary of thinking that I've got the eschatological vision. Amen. That's how you get triumphalism, right? And I think technically Kuiper himself wasn't really a triumphalist. I think, he, you know, part of him having clay feet is he was able to do great things with his brilliance, but he was also subject to his brilliance. And in being subject to his brilliance, he might not have been able to see ways that, hey, you're brilliant, but guess what? Uh, you need to revise something. Or many things. So, um, I, but but but, but I, you know, I, I think it, it's important to say um, the fact that Kuiper may say things that gave Bart reason for that. I mean, to me, I would say he needs to read more what a lot more what Kuiper said to see to, to see the breadth of that and to recognize that there's no way Kuiper would have thought, hey, this is great, what's happening, you know, in these countries that. It's not that he thought he thought it was great. He thought he did not have a theological reason to prevent it. Oh, I it's well, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. just that common grace, basically, he thought opened him up to it. Because his work is sufficient. Okay. You move on. No, 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 no. So, I'm sorry. You're just seeing, like, my response to like a, a typical critique of, of, of what could happen with common grace. So what I would say is this, uh, common grace doesn't mean that you see everything clearly. Amen. Common grace means that <coughs> the world is there for us to continue to engage, but it still requires discernment. And really, I mean, you know, I'm going to say this tomorrow uh, in chapel, but, but you've got to have both the common grace and the antithesis of, of, antithesis of Kuiper together. And I think if you have them together, then it's from, you know, the way I like to say it is common grace says, get out there in creation. Antithesis says, while you're out there, remember who you are. If you remember who you are as a Christian, then you have to be thinking about the fact that okay, God is at work within me, transforming me, uh, hopefully helping me to be humble, but also helping me to ask, uh, where might something be dangerous here? Where might idolatry be here? Where might oppression be here, etc.? To ask those kinds of questions. Where is, put simply, where are the ways that what I'm looking at can be exhibit A for excusing not loving your neighbor as yourself? Privately, publicly, structurally, etc. So that's... So, 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 I mean, so to me, if you, if, yes, if you take, I mean, can you do bad things with common grace? Of course you can. <coughs> Never with any doctrine. So. Sure. <coughs> yes. I'm sorry. You know, I, 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 no, 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 no. I, I'm sorry. You know, you're, you're like seeing like my bodily reaction to <laughs> things that I've thought about. So, the two kingdoms question. So there are some people. I mean, Mike Horton's friend. Mike Horton, David Van Drunen, 
they, they are talking about more of a two kingdoms approach to things. They would say it's not a problem for Christians to participate in public life, but they would be very hesitant about wanting to call those activities Christian activities, let's say, right? Uh, and here's what, here's what I think based on what, uh, is what, what one person's interpretation of it. Their concern is that because of, of neo-Calvinists who are so busy making everything beyond Sunday a Christian way of living, uh, that they wind up having a diffuse ecclesiology and that they don't care as much about what we do in church or as church. They want a more vibrant, robust notion of church where we hear the words and receive the sacraments. Uh, and they want that to be what we talk about, you know, being Christian. Um, here's my problem, actually, with the, the Two Kingdoms piece. It's less about how they argue for it than about a hazard that I think uh, it enables. That's already a hazard to begin with. And that is, you know, when you have a bunch of white middle and upper class people whose lives are pretty comfortable, and when they talk about two kingdoms and sure we should be involved in politics, et cetera, et cetera, it's just like people who were, who were very excited when James Davis and Hunter started talking about faithful presence and, it's what, and you're just being kind of local with your fidelity. It's great to talk about that when people pay you $7,000, you know, to get every one of your speaking gigs, you know, because your life's pretty comfortable. You had to think about a world in crisis and changing things. So of course you don't need to talk about transformation and you can talk about the perversions that there are when people make too much of politics or they have malfunctions in the way that they pursue politics. So my concern is less with the formulation than with the hazards that they enable that are hazards that people are already basically practicing. So if you have a bunch of people saying, well, you know, yeah, we should talk about race, et cetera, and basically what they're doing is, is saying, yeah, it was bad. But we probably don't really need to do that much about it, right? Why, why do we need to do, do that much about it? Well, because my life's pretty good. And maybe also because I probably don't want to face the horror of the world I actually live in if I look at the effects of the modern construction of race on people that aren't of European descent. Because if you look at that, you are looking at a horror show that is built into the modern world and built into the modern world, and then in some ways basically supported by these some Christians saying this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, you can, look, you can defend or, or say nice things about Dabney and Thornwell and also say that, you know, but when it came to, to race, uh, they went off the deep end. That they, like Kuiper, were not able to transcend their cultural limitations. And maybe they weren't able to see because of their cultural formation. But that's not an excuse to then be inactive about something that has basically operated like a virus in the modern world. And a mutating virus that seems to conveniently mutate every time you're about to eradicate it. Mm. Amen. So my problem's less with the two kingdoms thing than with the fact that it enables people to be passive about transformation. Amen. So um, now, the, what, what I would say about the reason why we always ought to be involved, it's kind of like what I said in chapel today. Think about it this way. To be a Christian is to be a human being made alive by the Spirit. Human beings are God's idea from page one. What has God wanted human beings to be from day one? God has wanted them to be people that are stewarding life in his world and leading it to his flourishing. He's never said, don't do that. If that's the case, and that means whatever human beings are doing in terms of their worship and their liturgy, they are also, as humans, to be or participating in the world in ways where they are stewarding it and leading towards its flourishing without confusing those things with making a realized eschatology. But they are involved as humans who are being transformed in this ongoing process. And, you know, it's just about what it means to be a regenerated human in God's world. 
Now, what, so, so one level, that, is, that avoids the question about whether it's this kingdom or another kingdom. And, and, and I think another thing with the Two Kingdoms piece is, you know, um, we're not in medieval Europe. Right? So uh, we're not, we, we don't even have kings. Okay? Luther was dealing with a society where you had kings. And he was trying to deal with how Christians operate in a society where you have kings and you think about your, what your responsibilities are. Um, you know, hypothetically, if Christians really, out of their inward transformation, were always oriented towards the flourishing of other people, going with the two kingdoms idea, right? Uh, and of course, their expectations are of what you expect of Christians when they're with other Christians in the church, and they have tempered expectations with what you can achieve in mixed company, but still their way of operating is really seeking the flourishing of all people out of this internal transformation, fine. But I'm seeing people not being so open to living out that internal transformation in a thoroughgoing way. So anyway, that's my answer to the question. Uh, Jay, I saw your hand uh, coming back up. Well, I don't want to go. I can just. No, tonight. Right. Speak the one comment. This is off the conversation with Kelly. Because of what you said about common grace. Which one? Which one? Which the capacity I wonder if you're letting Kuiper too quickly off of a perspective of apartheid only for this reason. I do think that the architects of apartheid strike me as trying in a straightforwardly um, honest way of, of trying to apply sphere sovereignty to the order that they understood. Uh, I mean, and, and I think Verward was a student of, of Kuiper. Do I hear? Or are you talking about? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, well, so, no, 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 no you're, so right, I, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, yeah. That, yeah, doesn't, yeah. that doesn't push it all back at Kuiper's yeah. feet. Right. But I think it was what Kelly said. I don't know that there are ample resources within Kuiperianism mm -hmm. to have um, run interference for that kind of application. So that, uh, that well, well, no, that's a great question. Um, uh, I guess what I would say is one, uh, one side of it is to the extent that, that there are the inadequacies in the legacy, the question is whether the legacy has development potential to respond to the to those weaknesses, right? Obviously, I think they do, right? Um, but those developments, in some cases, are things that are work to be done in the tradition. They're not necessarily things that Kuiper did himself. So, that, so I think there is that piece of it. That said, um, if Kuiper really takes seriously this high theological anthropology, I mean, how do you get apartheid with that theological anthropology? Mm -hmm. I mean, so apartheid is serving other people? Right now, now of course, you know, paternalism has a strange way of operating sometimes, right? This is what's best for everyone. Mm -hmm. this, right. th this, this keeps conflict mm -hmm. at a minimum. And then, of course, the temptation comes when the people who are structuring the system mm -hmm. just happen to be conveniently the ones who right. benefit most from right. it. Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, but, 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 but I think the, the point, I, I, to me, the, the big point about making with, with Kuiper and apartheid is that he cannot be directly blamed as the cause for apartheid. Um, and I think the other thing about sphere sovereignty, what people have to recognize is that sphere sovereignty is an idea that Kuiper articulates in 1880 as a rationale for the Free University of Amsterdam That's right. about public education. And he, uh, I mean, and he, he uses the idea again uh, in 1898. So in some ways, he certainly didn't develop it enough I mean, there are a lot of things he didn't develop enough, right? Because he's writing every day and doing like 10,000 things. That's why, you know, as George Harink puts it, you know, Herman Bovink is in like the Royal Dutch Academy of the Sciences, right? I mean, he, 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 he makes it to the Hall of Fame, so to speak, right? Kuiper does not. Why? Well, because he's always writing something different all the time. And very seldom uh, do you have in his tradition um, in one place a fully worked out view of something. Uh, I mean, bec because really he's writing for the occasion almost all the time. And when he's writing for the occasion, he's thinking about what will work for the occasion. It's one of the reasons why in Kuiper you don't see 
him, uh, you know, resolve the common grace antithesis uh, tension, or even whether common or how common grace works with particular <laughs> grace, because he primarily wasn't trying. I mean, he, he's just you know, he's just cranking, right? And so it's, it's like, hey, what, what, what am I talking about this week? No. So I think that what I would call the episodic character of his writing uh, makes. Um, makes his tradition one where you have to ask the question, all right, what, what's, what, are, what are plausible ways of, 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 of kind of synthesizing the points of tension? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, what time is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Oh. Is there like a final question? There's not a final question because everybody's applauding. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Sure. Wonderful. Yeah.